Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's guest is an expert witness of sorts on this. She has been working for several years as an activist in one of America's most controversial areas, trying to cajole compromises out of politicians while remaining true to a passionate base. She is Shannon Watts, a name that is probably familiar to any friend of the pod in good standing. She's the founder of the anti-gun violence group Moms Demand Action. She's a frequent guest on cable news and Pod Save America, and she's probably crossed your Twitter feed a time or two. Her new book is Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World. It is part memoir, part handbook, and in our conversation, I got to hear her reflect on some of the messier parts of that movement's journey, her own mistakes, and what kinds of lessons the organization has had to learn to make itself both effective and inclusive and more inclusively effective. If you've ever wondered whether Shannon Watts has thought about the optics of a bunch of suburban white ladies trying to do something about suburban school shootings, the answer is that she has thought about it a lot. And that's why Moms Demand Action is about, and made up of, a lot more than that these days. Coming right up, Shannon Watts. So Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk to you. I've talked about you a fair amount on the show, mainly in our Rothy's spots. <laughs> in a good way, I hope. Oh, well, it, well yes, because um, we do these ads for Rothy's, and you're the first person I ever knew that wore them. So, and apparently like— uh, Not just me. Like almost every single Moms to Me in Action volunteer, they love them. Okay, so we have to make clear, though, there's, this is not a paid endorsement— <laughs> <laughs> right. I wish. Don't don't. Wanna, I wish that I had free Rothies for the rest of my life. You know, I'll see what I can do. We'll see. Um, <laughs> that would be an interesting, like, side benefit to this career that you've you've put together. Um, let's get to why you're marching, right? Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with Moms Demand Action, and I, I think maybe some people even have sort of a general idea of your superhero origin story. Uh, which is, you know, the short version is that you were very much activated by the Sandy Hook massacre. I kind of want to talk to you about the the the, sup- the origin of the superhero origin story in a way, because that's one of the things I found most interesting about your book was what set you up to be the person or to be ready to take action after Sandy Hook. You want to talk a little bit about that, sort of the precursors to what was happening with you and why why yeah. Sandy Hook hit you as hard as it did that you felt you had to take action? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I was really struck by gun violence in this country, not personally, but just really secondhand watching it. I, I can remember I was a college student in Texas when there was a shooting massacre at a restaurant called Luby's. And it was on the news. It was really when news channels started doing a lot of the 24-hour coverage. And the visuals that were coming out of that were so disturbing. And I can remember feeling very distraught and sort of disbelieving that this could happen in America. It made me feel very unsafe. And then these shooting tragedies kept happening. You know, I was a very young mom with tiny kids when Columbine happened. Uh, I was a busy working mom when Virginia Tech happened. Uh, same with Gabby Giffords. And, and each time I thought, okay, someone is going to do something. They're, they're going to fix this because this seems so out of character for a country that values safety in other ways. And then I was staying, I was a stay-at-home mom for about five years in Indiana when the Sandy Hook tragedy happened. And that day I was watching TV and folding laundry and the news was coming in. And I can remember saying to the universe, please don't let this be as bad as it sounds. And it was just so horrific that even today it's hard to fathom that 20 first graders and six educators would be slaughtered in the sanctity of an elementary school. And all of the skills that I had learned in the corporate world, uh, I had been a corporate communicator in charge of messaging and branding and doing all of the things to create a successful product in the marketplace. And I took those same skills, that was really my limited skill set, and I applied them to this issue by creating a Facebook page and eventually a look and feel of Moms Demand Action that people wanted to join and belong to. There's a detail in your book I I wanted to to at least illuminate a little bit, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but before Sandy Hook, and you were, you know, also still paying, you were paying attention to gun violence, you had a conversation with your son that disturbed you? That's right. So in, uh, just after the Aurora shooting, um, my son was so shaken up having seen on the news that this had happened. And he desperately wanted to go to Batman. You know, he was, I think, 12 at the time, and his sisters, big sisters, were going to take him. And they took him to the movie, and right in the middle, he started having an anxiety attack. He thought people were armed or were going to come in with guns. And they left the theater. You know, he was crying. He came home, and it really started this months-long issue with anxiety where he would sleep on my floor and he was scared of a lot of things. And so when the Sandy Hook tragedy happened just six months later, my first thought was, oh, this is just going to be so devastating to Sam. We're going to go back into that place of horrific anxiety. He's going to be back, you know, sleeping on my floor. And and I was really worried about him. So We spent the weekend not talking about it, not having the news on. And then Sunday, before he was going to go to school the next day, I wanted to tell him because I knew someone would. And he was just not at all shocked. You know, he looked at me and said, well, that's just what happens in America, Mom. Hmm. And that, to me, that reaction was even scarier than the idea that he would be full of anxiety, that he would believe that gun violence— was something he should expect to have happen in his school or in his community. Yeah, I think for me, like, that's the 
um, I'm trying to think of the appropriate, you know, superhero origin story to compare it to. But for me, that that conversation that you had with your son where he was just like, well, this is just what happens. I feel like that's something that maybe put you over into this area where, you know, the momentum began to do, do organizing and to to do something that was going to be bigger than yourself, like bigger than your family. And it did start with a Facebook post. Um, but the other thing in your superhero origin story is, of course, that you said you had a career in corporate PR. And just so people know, the the book that you've written is part memoir, but it is also a handbook in a very real way, right? Like it's 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 very much intended to communicate to people the things that you've learned about starting an organization. Yeah. You know, I wished a manual had been available to me because there's so many challenges and roadblocks. And we really built the plane as we flew it. And I talk about how I knew nothing about organizing. I knew nothing about gun violence. I only knew that our nation was broken. And obviously, so many other women and moms felt the same way that day because they were Googling me and finding my email and my phone number. And they were reaching out and saying, I want to do this where I live. And I think what we all meant by this was starting Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for gun safety. And so many women brought their skill sets to the table, whether they were pediatricians or organizers or website developers. I mean, all of it came to me pro bono, and it really was how we were able to build this. But there were constant challenges that we had to figure out and then navigate and things that I never expected. You know, it's not easy to to manage volunteers. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure you're giving them the freedom to do what they're passionate about, but at the same time, you have to be strategic and win. Um, Social media is a double-edged sword. It's an amazing way to organize, but also it can, you know, create backlash when volunteers are unhappy or uh, people are making death threats against us. So all of these things were We really had to learn as we went. And I get so many calls from people who say, I want to do what you did in my community or my neighborhood or my state, and maybe even not on this issue, another issue they're passionate about. How did you do this? And so I finally wanted to just put that on paper. And I feel like it's important to point out, um, I had assumed, and I think maybe other people assume, that you have somehow been personally touched by gun violence. But that's not the case. And I don't I think that's a a feature here. Like, you don't have to be somehow personally touched by something to have the passion to do something about it. And also, there's the other way of looking at it, which is we're all touched by gun violence, right? That's absolutely true. I mean, at least one in three Americans have been impacted by gun violence in this country. But regardless, we see 100 Americans are shot and killed every day. So it's constantly on the news and on our television sets and on our newspapers. And there is this sense of secondhand trauma, particularly after— mass shootings in this country or school shootings. And I was not personally impacted. And what I found is so interesting is that the gun violence survivors who work on this are so grateful for people getting involved who haven't been impacted. They think that's heroic. Mm -hmm. But I think it's heroic for people who have been impacted that they are able to turn that pain into action to protect the lives of perfect strangers and and prevent them from going through the same pain they've experienced. That, to me, is heroic. I think there's enough heroism to go around. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I also think it's important because, you know, on this show, we kind of talk a lot about allyship and a lot about taking that step beyond just feeling concerned and going into the world to do something about the thing you're concerned about or angry about. And I just want to, because you don't have to, I think people think too narrowly sometimes about what is it that I want to be an activist about, right? Like what is touching me? that I can I can move on. I think it whatever it is that that activates you, you're going to be an asset if you bring your passion, right? Like it doesn't happen it doesn't have to be a passion that comes from some intimate knowledge. Like I for instance, just we we want men to work on behalf of women's rights, <laughs> you know. Right? We need right. We, we need people who actually step out of their sphere of personal experience. Um, and and to be activists for for things that they don't necessarily have that intimate firsthand knowledge of. I, I really think passion is the key. And I was so angry that within hours after the Sandy Hook shooting, I saw pundits and politicians on my television telling me the solution to this crisis is more guns. Mm-hmm. As if 400 million guns in the hands of civilians just wasn't quite enough to keep us as safe as we need to be. And I intuitively knew that was wrong, regardless of the fact that I I knew nothing really about gun policy. Uh, But again, at the beginning, we weren't necessarily the people that should have done this. (laughs) We weren't experts, um, but we were angry and we were outraged. And we, even though people said to us like, this has already exists, or you don't need to do this, or you're not the right people to do this, or why don't you wait? Why don't you call yourself something else? Um, all of these, this input we received, we really ignored and just trusted our gut. I want to talk about the things that you learned. You, you, you've touched on it a couple of times in your responses about what you didn't expect when you started this. What was the biggest surprise for you? The first biggest surprise was that Congress didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, after a mass shooting in an elementary school, you would expect they would do something. And so we had spent the first several months organizing around a bill called Mansion Toomey, a bipartisan bill that would have closed the the federal background check loophole. And that didn't pass. In fact, there were a handful of senators on the Democratic side who voted against it. And I kind of thought, maybe the country isn't ready for this. We've done our best. We've worked so hard over the last several months. Maybe this just isn't going to work. And our volunteers intuitively pivoted and started doing this work in their state houses and boardrooms where they lived. And I realized that we would have to build a political movement. And you do that in this country by creating momentum in state houses and boardrooms. And it eventually points Congress in the right direction. So I was surprised that Congress is really where this work ends and not where it begins. I was also surprised by the incredible energy in red states It was as if people had finally found their tribe. Other people who supported common sense gun laws, restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights in the very reddest of states, frankly, Republicans and Democrats alike, and that these women found each other and knew that if they used their voices and their votes, they could create change. And that really emboldened them in those states. And I I wasn't sure we could do that. And we did very effectively. What about the organizing piece of it? I mean, you say uh, you were surprised that Congress didn't take action. And I think, I'd say, unfortunately, um, that wouldn't have been the thing that surprised me. Um, But 
when you're talking about building a movement, what were the things that you you learned in that process that you didn't know or didn't expect? Well, as I mentioned, I, I didn't expect that it would be as easy as it was in red states. I certainly did not realize how much defense we'd have to play. We thought we could go into states and pass stronger gun laws. Instead, we really ended up playing a lot of defense. The The NRA works to pass incredibly insidious bills uh, at the state level every single year. And bills that you think you've defeated come back again and again. And we spend a huge amount of time working on those issues um, every single year, showing up and being vigilant. I I didn't realize influencers and celebrities uh, were reluctant to get involved in this issue, that it would take several years and, and frankly, some brave women um, to galvanize people in that community, uh, that companies, even though women make 80% of the spending decisions for their families, uh, would have to be dragged kicking and screaming into this issue as well. Um, I would say so. those were some of the biggest revelations. Regular listeners of the show know what bra I wear. I wear Third Love. They are a sponsor. I actually absolutely adore them. I can read you the list of reasons that they've given me. I can also just tell you that their bras are stylish and they are designed for every woman. They have, I think, I can't remember how many different varieties or how many different variations of cup sizes they have. The important thing for me is they have half cup sizes. And I never knew before Third Love that I had a half cup size breast. And if you are wondering what size you are, they have a fit finder quiz. Answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Over 12 million women have taken the quiz to date. They say it's actually fun. I would actually agree. It is fun. They have like amusing ways to think about the shape of your girls. And I am bell-shaped. I don't know what you are, but you will find out. Every customer has 60 days to wear, wash, and put to the test the bra that they decide to buy. And if you don't love it, return it in third level, wash it, and donate it to a woman in need. If you don't like the idea of just using a quiz, you can call one of their fit stylists, and they're available every day to help via chat, text, or phone. Returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love is the industry leader with 70 sizes, including those half cup sizes. It is the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off the first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. Thirdlove.com slash friends. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. There's like sort of two directions I want to go here. One is that I want to get to some of the manual parts of the book more because I think that's really interesting, sort of these lessons that you learned about dealing with people. Um, because I think for me, you know, the political part of it, I looked at in this book as you're the mirror image of a lot of the stuff that conservative groups have been doing for a while, right? Like, they have a playbook that we, 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 I'll say we, 
can look to for a lot of sort of the bare bones politics of it, like we're organizing at state houses, playing defense. They've been doing that for a while. Oh, running in local elections is another thing that's really important that you talk about. The part that interested me and that I personally like just would have no idea about and and was fascinated to learn from you is like the nuts and bolts of dealing with a group of passionate people and how to direct that passion. <laughs> yeah, you know, managing volunteers is much different than managing paid employees, which is what I was used to in my job in the corporate world. You know, you you gave people their marching orders and and they did them or you received your marching orders and you did them. And and managing volunteers is a completely different ball game. Um on one hand, that's amazing because it teaches you to constantly show gratitude and to thank people and to have humility and to be so grateful that people are giving you their time and their talent out of the goodness of their heart. So many of our volunteers who are incredibly busy, moms, employees, family members, sometimes carve an entire extra work week out of their lives just to focus on this issue. And so part of the my job that I love the most is to make thank you calls to volunteers and to just, it, sometimes I end up crying because I'm just so grateful that they would give their time and talents to us. On the other hand, these are very smart, opinionated women. And sometimes they don't want to go in the same direction that our leadership wants to go in. And negotiation becomes incredibly important. It's it's necessary to not be a top-down organization when you're dealing with volunteers. You have to listen and let volunteers lead, but at the same time, you have to be strategic and you have to win. Um, and so that has been a balancing act that we've learned, particularly since you know about a year into the, the work, uh, we decided to partner with Mayors Against Illegal Guns, which was an organization run by Mayor Bloomberg from the mayor's office. And we created the Every Town for Gun Safety umbrella. Moms Demand Action is now their, their grassroots arm. And when we did that partnership, you know, there were many original volunteers who said, this is not for me. You know, th- this overlay of strategy that prevents me from doing everything and anything I want at any time hmm. is just not why I got into this. And we are always experiencing those kinds of growing pains. You know, we tripled in size after the tragedy in Parkland. Because we had built this machinery on the ground that could absorb those volunteers who finally wanted to get off the sidelines. But each wave of growth brings new growing pains. I think that's a good thing. If we're not experiencing growing pains, we're not growing. Have any of those growing pains been more personal for you? <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes people decide they want to leave and and they're, they leave in a very loud and dramatic way on social media um, that can be aimed at me or uh, they they are close personal friends and, and when they leave, they, those, they sever those ties. So there have certainly been things over the years that were unfortunate or sad or disappointing, but that's just part of the nature of any kind of work or activism. Um, if you're involved long enough, that those kinds of things will happen. And it's been almost six and a half years now. We're the, one of the largest grassroots movements in the country. But that is in part why I wrote the book, too, because social media adds such a complex factor to all of this. When, when volunteers are happy, then, you know, it works and, and it's robust. And when they're not, 
um, it's something that you you have to address. You can't just let it simmer. And and it can get very loud and big on social media. And having a background in crisis communications, when I see more one or more volunteers bringing up the same issue over and over again online, I raise that red flag internally and say, this has to be addressed. We have to figure this out because our volunteers are telling us to listen. One of the more interesting chapters in the book for me was where you reveal a little bit of a bait and switch in your organization. Maybe that, maybe that might be a harsh way to put it, but it's chapter nine where you talk about how uh, moms demand action may be a place that people think of when uh, a mass shooting happens, but that's not actually like the core of your work, that the work is much broader than right. that. It's interesting because, you know, I, I was a white suburban stay-at-home mom when Sandy Hook happened, and I was scared that my children weren't safe in their schools. And so many of the women who came into the organization at the same time when we were building it were, looked like me and, and lived like me. And a very important part of this movement is that we didn't just stay focused on school shootings or mass shootings, that we are invested in addressing the daily gun violence that kills 100 Americans, whether it's gun homicides in city centers, gun suicides in rural communities, unintentional shootings. We're the only country where children have easy access to guns and shoot themselves or other people. And all of it matters. Uh, and, and that is a big part of why we focus so much on diversity, equality, and inclusion. Um, because... Even all the hard work we did between 2012 and 2018 to diversify our leadership and um, to make sure that the, our hires were diverse, suddenly we found ourselves tripling in size after the Parkland tragedy, and the people, again, who came into the organization looked a lot like me. And what we realized was that this work never ends. Um, I'm very happy to have just hired uh, a woman named Angela Farrell Zabala from Planned Parenthood Hood, who is going to focus on this issue um, and, and help us move forward on it. You know, over 40% of our hires last year were non-white. But gun violence, you can't really talk about gun violence in this country without talking about race. And it's just important that we, we stay focused on that. Do you feel like you learned more about white privilege from doing this work? Was that something that you had been thinking oh, about before, so much. but maybe no. not had to take action on? Or or do you feel like this was like a real learning experience for you to see oh, this process? It has been such a learning experience. I mean, I, I thought about it, obviously. Yeah. And I, I thought I was raising children who were open-minded, and, and I believe I did. But the extent of my white privilege and the extent to which I needed to learn and listen I hadn't even scratched the surface before Moms Demand Action. And I've made so many mistakes along the way and so many assumptions that I knew what I was doing or what I was talking about. And I'm so grateful. I mean, people don't have to teach me, but they have. And I've worked on my own to learn. And it's I'm, I'm just so incredibly grateful for the experience. Would you mind sharing a mistake? 
so we can learn. Oh, sure. <laughs> I can remember after the election, you know, I was very much not all white women, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah, yeah. voted for Trump or supported Trump. And looking back now, I mean, it was just so, you know, why wasn't I listening more mm-hmm. and understanding that I do play a role in, in the white women who voted for Donald Trump, uh, even though I didn't, and that it is my job as a white woman to make sure that we're having these conversations and and we're talking about the real toll um, that the president's policies have taken on people of color and on marginalized communities. Um, and it was really a knee-jerk defensive reaction to protect my own feelings and my own ego. And it took some time and space to figure that out. But I, I feel very stupid for, <laughs> you know, having been so reactionary. Well, it's—, it's I- I, mean, I I feel like I almost want to tell you, no, it's not stupid. The problem is it's it's just we don't think. It's not that we're stupid, right? I mean, I say we as another privileged white woman. It's literally we don't think. It's it's that I yep. think that's what privilege is, is not having to think, right? Like yep. we, we just get, get to not think about stuff. Or to think about our own feelings. Right. I think that's, you know, I was— I was kind of like, hey, I'm super evolved. Yeah. Well, well, you know, how do I play a role in that? And again, I'm grateful for the learnings because it makes me a better person. It makes me a better leader. Um, and, and there's so much more to learn, right? I've only, I'll, I'll never learn it all, but I want to. Unfortunately, the, the thing about being woke is actually it's always just wakening, right? Like there's no, <laughs> yes. there's no, there's no place where you're just like awake. It's like you just, you have to keep going. It's one of the reasons I don't like the phrase. That's right. Um, but well, you, it's like Buddhism, right? You're never really enlightened. <laughs> well, I, yes. And you know what? That is actually the better comparison. Um, someone pointed out to me that the original like etymology of how people started using the word woke was actually in conjunction with thinking about Buddhism. But it's become its own mm. like weird cliche. So let's just bring it back to Buddhism. Yes. Yeah. The awakening. <laughs> Good. I, I want, if you don't mind, it sounds like in the book you talk about Lucy McBath a lot as being a part of that journey. Do you want to share a little bit about mm. about her? Yeah, so Lucy McBath, her son Jordan Davis, a black teen, was shot and killed in Florida just before the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012, a month before, by a white man who said his music was too loud. Jordan was visiting his dad. Lucy had breast cancer in Georgia at the time. And... Just a few months later, someone called me and said, there's this amazing woman who is working on activism in Georgia. She, her, her son was just murdered. You guys have to talk. And they set up a call. And to know Lucy McBath is to love her. I mean, just even talking to her over the phone, you could feel what an extraordinary human she, she is. And I said to her, again, we were only a few months old. I just said, will you be a national spokeswoman for our organization? We, we need to talk about how gun violence is impacting communities of color, especially Black men and Black boys. And she said yes. And it started an amazing friendship. Um, she eventually became an employee of the organization and talked to a lot of faith-based organizations and rallied Moms to Men Action volunteers across the country. And every time we would have a conversation— you know, I would say to her, when are you going to run for office? And I'll, I'll be honest, I thought like Georgia State House. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one day she said to me, you know, I am thinking about running for office. It was probably two years later. And she did run for State House. And then after the Parkland tragedy, she said, you know, I really think I should run for Congress. I think I should change course because 
it's so important that we have voices at the table there. And she did, and she won. Uh, She won a seat held by Republicans for 30 years, Newt Gingrich's old seat. And she's made an incredible difference on this issue already just in the short amount of time she's been in Congress. But she has also been an incredible teacher. Um, She's come to me when there were ways we can improve as an organization, especially around issues of, of diversity and equality and inclusion. And she continues to lead in that way, even as a congresswoman. So one of, I found the most powerful sort of places of education for me in the book was a story you tell about Lucy McBath and an allyship that formed that led to some discomfort, but like a lot of discomfort leads to some some learning. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, Lucy forged a partnership um, with a man named Reverend Shank, who was infamous for having been on the front line of the anti-abortion arguments in the 90s. Uh, He had thrown fetuses at people. I mean, he was really extreme and radicalized. And what's interesting is he was actually raised in the Jewish faith and then became an evangelical Christian preacher. Uh, And he had this epiphany after a shooting near his home in in Washington, D.C., that gun violence was really part of the pro-life agenda. He he evolved. I mean, as all humans hopefully do, he, he evolved on the issue. Uh, and he befriended Lucy, who is also very strong in her Christian faith. Um, she does support abortion rights, but they had a lot in common. And they forged this partnership, and it was it was featured in a movie called Armor of Light. And since that movie, Reverend Shank has even evolved on his position on abortion to be much less extreme. But some of our volunteers really did not like that she had created this, this relationship and that it was featured in the movie. And they felt like we were taking a stand as an organization on abortion. When we weren't, we were simply supporting the idea that Gun violence prevention should be embraced by everyone, both sides of the aisle, all religions, and that when someone changes their hearts and minds about the issue, we should give them credit where credit is due. But it was it made, in fact, the, the Nashville chapter of our organization so angry that many of them left mm. uh, the organization. And for us, it was it was a lesson about communicating. You know, had we clearly talked about where we stood on this issue and why uh, we were supporting the movie that Lucy was in. But frankly, along the way, Reverend Shank has been a a boon to us and opened many doors to have conversations with people we couldn't before. And and also, Reverend Shank has suffered a great deal uh, in terms of his uh, um, own—he had a church, which is— was very well attended by members of Congress, and and many of them have abandoned him. Uh, And he's had to downsize, and he has never wavered in his support of stronger gun laws and shows up with Moms Demand Action volunteers. And I just think it's a powerful lesson that we have to allow people to evolve. We can't really just shut down when someone doesn't agree with us. It would make it very difficult on this issue. You know, my my dad voted for Donald Trump, and he did not support the work I was doing when I first started Moms Demand Action. Uh, and and now he he says he regrets that vote, and he wore a Moms Demand Action T-shirt to a rally we just had. So people can change; they can evolve, and we're not going to unelect every single lawmaker who disagrees with us. 
but we can change their hearts and minds. I want to talk more about changing hearts and minds, but this is a good place to take a short break. We'll be right back. Allow me to tell you about Stitch Fix. Perhaps the best endorsement that I can offer you today is that I was sharing with Karen in the booth that I'm in fact wearing an item of Stitch Fix clothing today, and she guessed what it was. It is my sweatshirt, which is like a very comfortable but stylish kind of loose-fitting sweatshirt with, uh, I believe they call them cold shoulder arms. I like the cold shoulder arms because you can see my tattoos through them. Other people might like them because they keep their shoulders from getting warm. I don't know. I love Stitch Fix because it dresses me in a way that I should dress. <laughs> I, um, As I have said before, I tend to wear pretty sloppy stuff around the house, and I don't like to go shopping. So if I didn't have any other way of shopping in my life, I would scramble a bit on days that I leave the house. Because of Stitch Fix, when I come to the studio, I have something stylish on that also kind of suits my personality. And they will find out what your personality is. That's actually the really cool thing about Stitch Fix. You will work with an online stylist who knows what you want, knows your sizes, knows what you need. Stitch Fix has the brands you know and love, plus exclusive styles you won't find elsewhere. And after you complete your style profile, your expert stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items based on your preferences. They also do boxes for men and kids. No subscription required. Pick between automatic shipments or only getting new pieces on demand. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. Plus, the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything you keep in your box. Discover new styles and find unique pieces with Stitch Fix. Get started today at stitchfix.com friends and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com friends, stitchfix.com friends. Communicating with people that we disagree with is one of my main concerns in life <laughs> and in doing this podcast. <laughs> and it's interesting to me, the story you tell about um, Lucy and the, the reverend. Every successful activist that I've talked to for this show has told me a story about working with someone with whom they have a diametrically opposed belief on some other issue. It's eerie almost, the, the continuity of these stories, that um, people who are out in the field seem to realize in a way that, you know, maybe those of us who stay in studios don't, that these kinds of what what you could call compromises, but maybe that's not the right word, are necessary if you want to move forward with your work. Is that something mm. that you knew before, or, or is that something you really feel like you have learned? I've lived in a lot of red states, and I worked for some politicians early in my career. I worked for Governor Carnahan's administration in Missouri, very young. But I think I saw some of the way the sausage was made and realized there is gray. There isn't only black and white. Um, I also come from a family full of both conservatives and progressives. And so I've seen it personally that way as well. I think some of it is growth and maturity as a, a human being. I'm 48 years old. I don't 
I'm not the same person I was 10 or even 20 years ago. And I'm willing to give people grace because I'm so grateful when it's given to me because I have and do make mistakes all the time. And I have changed my mind on so many issues as I've gotten older. And I think if we just completely shut people out when they don't agree with us, which is kind of what we see happening over and over on social media, that if you hold a different opinion or a nuanced opinion or or an opinion that requires compromise, that you're sort of dead to some people. And I don't see how that furthers the national conversation because if we don't let people change or evolve, we're only working with those people who agree with us. And I, I don't see how you ever get a majority to get anything done. Yes, you can have different opinions and pull people in your direction, for sure. But you only do that by behaving in a civil way. And if you look at, for example, our organization versus gun extremists, we aren't giving people death threats, threats of sexual violence, um, but, but those extremists are. And I just think we're creating this culture of, of polarization when we should be having more conversations. I wonder if there's a dynamic at work here that's not unlike or is somehow related to the idea that organizations, activist organizations, need both people who have been intimately touched by the issue and people who, whose passion comes from some other source. Because I think... I support those people that have protested against, you know, anti-choice religious leaders, right? I think that that's an important thing to do. But I also think it's really important that that Lucy and Reverend Shank were were able to work together. I mean, you kind of have to have both, right? I mean, you can't just say, well, everyone should work with everyone. It needs to be some people are in a place where they can reach across— and then some people maybe do need to draw lines. That's right. And it, it does take all voices, but it hopefully it's done in a civil way. You know, an interesting example of this, I think, is in Pennsylvania. Um, we supported a Republican for Congress, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, who was really good on this issue, who filled out our Gun Sense Candidate Questionnaire and earned our distinction. Actually, both people in that race did, the Democrat and the Republican. And he had a track record to back it up. And our our volunteers on the ground, many of them wanted us to support the Democrat because that person was better on all of the issues that, that they cared about. But we are an issue focused on gun violence prevention. And we ended up in, endorsing this congressman, and he won. And he has voted the right way on all of the gun bills that have come in front of him since the elect- since the congressional session started this year, um, even even for the VAWA bill, which includes a policy, a new policy that would close what we call the boyfriend loophole. It would broaden the definition of what a domestic abuser is and a prohibited purchaser. And that that is an important step forward. We need Republicans and Democrats alike to vote for stronger gun bills, or we're never going to make progress. And lives are on the line. I mean, time is of the essence. 100 Americans die every single day. Uh, we don't have time to to wait until we unelect the people we don't agree with. I think that that's, like I said, I, 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 that's a, something that I hear from almost every activist I've talked to that's at work in the field. 
But it also makes me think of a a sentence in, in your book that I absolutely loved, which is, you know, the fight against gun violence is the fight for equality. The idea that there, as they say sometimes on the campuses, the intersectionality of this issue, for instance. Right. Do you want to describe what you mean by that? It, it is intersectionality. And, and as a Gen X person, um, you know, we didn't talk a lot about that when I was younger or in college. And that's been a great learning to me, too, which is you can't talk about gun violence without talking about how it is manifested by police officers shooting unarmed black men. You can't talk about gun violence without talking about the mostly black trans women who are shot and killed in this country almost every week. You can't talk about the about gun violence without talking about the impact it has on the LGBTQ community. And it's easy to just focus on the gun violence that makes the national news, but if we really want everyone to be safe and to be equal and to be lifted up, then we have to focus on all of it. And that takes a lot of time and effort. It takes understanding what our crisis is, what's causing it, how we can fix it. But it also takes going into those communities, making sure they're part of our organization, that we're partnering with them, that we're supporting their work. And I think that's where the intersectionality lives. I want to make very clear that I I am not posing this question in a critical way, but it's just interesting to me, which is the idea that if gun violence prevention or the fight for gun violence is about the fight for equality, to me there's also an intersectionality about women's bodily autonomy there too, right? I mean, like you talk about the domestic abuser piece, like there's a way that it even connects to women's bodily autonomy, but again, like I'm not... You can't fight every front at once. And they're in order to move forward, you are going to have to find the people that agree with you on, on this issue. And maybe the, thing, the other thing we need to be highlighting about the case with, with Lucy and, and Reverend Shank is you just mentioned he's become less extreme on abortion rights. Yes. And I think that's because of his relationship with Lucy, frankly. Uh-huh. But the gun violence is a women's issue. Yeah. Women oh. in this country are 20 times more likely to be shot and killed than in high, other high-income countries. Uh, 53 women are shot and killed by intimate partners every month. So we do talk a lot about how this is a women's issue. Ultimately, we have to focus as an organization on one thing. And for us, that's gun violence prevention. There are other organizations that do amazing work. And I support them, right? I'm I'm a single-issue voter because of gun violence, but I don't leave a, lead a single-issue life. Mm-hmm. I care so much about other issues, and I get involved in them, and I can wear different hats. But if we started to talk about other issues that we focus on as Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, it would sort of muddy the waters and, and reduce the amount of power we have because 90% of Americans support us, 80% of gun owners, 74% of NRA members. Um, and it's much, much like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I'm sure those those moms <laughs> cared about other issues. But when they were wearing their, their shirts and going to state houses, this was the issue they were focused on. And I think it also points to the idea that not all conversations we have about issues we disagree about need to happen in public, right? 
Like, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's actually a huge, something that, that I've had to relearn a lot. Because in fact, having a conversation in public about an issue with a lot of passion around it, sometimes is quite unproductive. Sometimes it leads people to just, just, you know, uh, digging into their own, own, own opinion and, and, and shutting their ears. And maybe that's... Well, and especially if you're having it on social media, yeah. you lose so much nuance as yeah. opposed to sitting face to face. I mean, that's sort of the, the, and that's maybe I'm I'm just thinking of the of the Reverend Shank story again. Is that he and Lucy, when he any progress he has made on on choice, probably didn't happen because he and Lucy like had a debate in public about it. I'm guessing, right? Like, oh, no. <laughs> this is another lesson I feel like I learn over and over again, which is that when we have an entrenched difference with someone, sometimes the way to make progress on it or the way to come together is to let it lie while we work on the other the thing we do agree on. I, I think that's absolutely right. And and I've learned also, you asked me what I've learned since I started the organization, especially as it comes to my white privilege, and that's tone policing, right? Mm. There are times that I have felt called out, but it's okay to call me out. People should call me out when I'm behaving in a way that exhibits that white privilege. But at the same time, I think when we forge relationships and we have offline conversations and we link arms and spend time together and really get to know one another or work on an issue together, that is where real change happens. It's where you forge bonds. It's certainly not on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's why I encourage people to get involved in person, to spend time in their state houses, to, you know, if you want to join Moms Demand Action, to to be part of the community and to come to meetings and show up and do the work because there's so many lessons you learn, including, you know, what you're talking about, which is the value of changing hearts and minds either through conversation or through working together. A question I get asked a lot in, in, in doing this show is, I feel so hopeless. What do I, how do I maintain oh. hope? Now, I'll tell you, this is, I'm particularly interested in asking you this question because one of my standard responses is to get involved with something, actually, is that um, if you want to be hopeful about the future, start working on something that might change it. Um, But now, but I have to ask you, as someone who's working on something that might change it, how do you deal with, with feelings that I, I imagine they must come up every once in a while of, you know, I, exhaustion, I can let's say. I tell you with 100% honesty that even though there are times I'm overwhelmed or exhausted or sad or angry, I am never hopeless. Mm. And one of my least favorite emotions is cynicism. I see it play out every time there's a shooting tragedy in this country. Um I actually spent time arguing with Chris Cuomo on Twitter about it this weekend after the Virginia Beach shooting when he said, we don't have a will as a country to fix this problem. And it erases all the work that is being done, whether it's women on the front lines, particularly women of color in their communities that have been invisibly doing this work for decades, whether it's Moms Demand Action volunteers who spend day after day sitting sometimes for 17 hours in gun bill hearings just to defeat something that that would have passed and endangered the state. 
Uh, there's so much being done. And I, look, I could rattle off all the wins we've had over the last almost seven years, and it would take a while. But I wouldn't wake up and do this work every day as a full-time volunteer if we weren't winning. The, the idea that we would give up and give in to the gun lobby is so absurd to me that we would be willing to live in a nation where gun lobbyists write our gun laws. I don't think there's any person in America who would accept that, as, especially as a parent. Um, the, the fact that 20, we have a gun homicide rate that's 25 times higher than any other pure nation. That's, that's just not sustainable. And the sooner we fix this problem, and we know we can do it by using people's voices and their votes, and their activism, the fewer lives that will be lost. So I think hopelessness is dangerous, especially when it's being espoused by pundits and politicians. It's why I always, always correct that misinformation on the record. This, this is such a hopeful time for the gun safety movement. The NRA is weaker than it's ever been. They're under in several investigations. We outspent and outmaneuvered them in the 2018 elections. Going into 2020, their hands are tied behind their back, and we are stronger than we've ever been. We have 350,000 donors, hundreds of thousands of volunteers, almost 6 million supporters. We are going to win this issue, but it does take everyone getting off the sidelines. I think I want to end on that hopeful note, Shannon. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And that is it for this week. Full disclosure, we taped this very early. So there's a chance that what I have to say next is not something that's going to be in the news cycle when you hear it. But I'm going to say it anyway. I think you will understand why. If you have ever experienced sexual violence, there is no one right way to recover. You don't have to share your story to heal, and it doesn't have to have been that bad to need to heal. If you want to start your journey by talking to someone, you can reach out to the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network via the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is 800-656-HOPE. Take care of yourselves. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. 